Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, it's Amit Coyle. Welcome back to a reboot of the Heart Failure series, aka the Heart Success series, brought to you in collaboration with the Heart Failure Society of America and dedicated in memory of the great Dr. David O. Taylor. In this incredibly high yield episode, we learn about the clinical exam of the patient with heart failure from Dr. Mark Drasner, Clinical Chief of Cardiology at UT Southwestern, in an episode led by Dr. Alex Pipolis, our Cardiner's Ambassador from Boston Medical Center. And remember, friends, Cardiner's is an independent, fellow-founded platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not represent the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to claim free CME credit in the episode description. Before we get nerdy, Here's a word from our sponsors who make this high-quality, free education possible. Friends, this wonderful episode is made possible with support from Panacea Financial. We're lucky to have the founder of Panacea, MedPete's faculty in Arkansas, and fellow cardiator Dr. Michael Jerkins with us. Michael, would you tell us what Panacea is and the vision behind its creation? Well, thanks for having me. I've been a proud cardio nerd for a long time myself and use these episodes to teach on rounds pretty frequently. But Panacea Financial is a digital bank that's built for doctors and doctors in training by doctors. So fellow physician co-founder Ned Palmer and I, we felt like we didn't have many fair options for banking because traditional banks viewed us as bad customers with our high debt and limited savings or income. And banks were never open when we had time off. Going back to even intern year, we had these conversations and eventually we created a digital bank that gives all customers concierge level service available 24-7, free checking nationwide, and loan options that are built just for doctors and, and trainees like our PRN personal loan that requires no co-signer to get up to $75,000 in as little as 24 hours at a rate that's less than half of a credit card. And no one should borrow more than they need, but training and life can be pretty expensive and doctors really honestly deserve a better option at financing. Well, that's just awesome, Michael. It seems to be a great resource that addresses many of the issues that a lot of us go through. But one of the reasons we're so proud to have your support is our shared mission with your foundation. When it comes to promoting professional diversity and inclusion, would you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing? Yeah, so our profits from Panacea Financial actually fund our foundation that aims to strengthen the pipeline of underrepresented minority physicians. And this year alone, we're awarding $50,000 in grants and scholarships to medical students, residents, and fellows. Because at Panacea, we aim to make medicine better by decreasing financial stress, but also by diversifying our workforce. Congratulations to you and your team for the incredible work you all are doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Cardi Nerds, to find out more, go to PanaceaFinancial.com to learn how you can join the growing number of physicians that expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC, and you can find more using the links in the episode description. Welcome back, Cardi Nerds. Thanks for joining us today. We get to continue our original heart failure series with this very special installment. Today, we get to learn all about the role of the clinical exam in heart failure in this episode led by Dr. Alex Pipolis, first-year fellow in training and our Cardiner's ambassador from Boston Medical Center. Alex completed medical school at Loyola University in Chicago and then internal medicine and chief residency at Boston Medical Center. Alex enjoys traveling, riding the Peloton, <laughs> Alex, I didn't get the Peloton. I got this Bowflex Velocore bike. And oh my gosh, my stamina, like we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about VO2 max and all that. My stamina is so bad right now. I couldn't, let's say, let's just say I've got work to do. She also enjoys spending time with friends and family in Boston. Alex, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me on Cardio Nerds, and I'm feeling super honored to represent Boston University. Maybe we can have a conversation later about the merits of Peloton versus other bikes. Well, let's just say that the saving grace of the, the Bowflex bike is that it doesn't have a leaderboard, so at least I don't have that pressure. <laughs> well, honestly, guys, all this uh, exercise talk is making me feel really guilty about the pizza I ate, but Alex, the honor is ours to have you here. So who did you pick to learn from today? 
Well, guys, we are in for a real treat today, and it is my distinct honor to introduce Dr. Mark Drasner. Dr. Drasner is a professor of medicine at UT Southwestern School of Medicine. He's currently the clinical chief of cardiology and the medical director of the LVAD and cardiac transplant program. Dr. Drasner earned his medical degree at Washington University in St. Louis. He then completed his residency in internal medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center, where he also served as chief resident. He did his fellowship training in cardiology at Duke University and then further specialized in heart failure and cardiac transplant through a fellowship right here in Boston at Brigham Women's Hospital. He also earned a master's of science in epidemiology at Harvard University's School of Public Health. Dr. Dreisner currently serves on the Heart Failure Society of America Board of Directors and Executive Committee and is the president-elect for the 2021-2022 term. Welcome, Dr. Dreisner, and thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, Alex. It's really a distinct pleasure to be here with you. Um, really looking forward to the discussion. The history and physical exam is so important to us in so many ways. It lets us hear patient stories and collect key clinical clues. It also allows us to really connect with patients in a way that goes beyond the computer screen. Despite so many technological advances with echo, advanced imaging techniques, and biomarkers, the history and physical exam is still in many ways the foundation of medicine. Dr. Drasner, you have written extensively about the role of the clinical exam in our patients with heart failure. Can you tell us why the HMP is so vital in the assessment of our patients? Absolutely. And as you point out, the history and physical of the clinical exam, people talk about this concept of laying on the hands where, where there's just this interaction between the provider, the physician, and their patient that's cementing kind of the bond. And, and that's important. I'm not going to minimize that. But I have to say, if that was all that was there, probably would not be uh, advocating so strongly. I, I think it turns out that the clinical exam of history and physical is the key diagnostic test when we're assessing patients with heart failure. And as we'll talk about, it really lets us non-invasively assess patients' underlying hemodynamic status. And it turns out it's going to provide a lot of prognostic information. So I view it as a diagnostic test. There's nothing magical about it. It's just another diagnostic test. And equally important, I think we need to generate an evidence base for it and also understand the strengths and limitations of this diagnostic test. The physical exam is such a cornerstone of medicine. And one thing I appreciate, Dr. Drasner, just looking at how you've taught it before, is the integration of evidence-based medicine so that we know how to use it rationally. And also the ability to use it in a way that's hypothesis-driven only serves our patients best. So why don't we take a stroll over to our heart success clinic and see some patients. Our first patient, Mr. Hef Refner, is a 68-year-old man with a known history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with a LV ejection fraction of 30% who presents to clinic today for an urgent visit for shortness of breath. You mentioned the ability to non-invasively assess the hemodynamic status just by history and physical exam alone. When a patient like this with a history of heart failure comes to you, how do you approach thinking about and classifying their hemodynamic status, Dr. Drasner? Absolutely. And, and I have to say, uh, my mentor developed this system, uh, Lynn Stevenson, and she called it a two-minute hemodynamic assessment. And what you basically want to do is you want to categorize your patient along two axes. The first is their volume status and whether the patient's congested or not. And then the second axis is their state of perfusion. Are they adequately perfused or not? The congestion status, people talk about that being either wet or dry. And then the uh, perfusion axis, people talk about as either being warm or cold. And so you kind of develop a two-by-two two table. And you can do this very quickly once you understand what are the key parameters to look for in the exam. And I think that really forms the rational basis of trying to estimate a patient's hemodynamic status through the clinical exam. Great. So it sounds like it comes down to thinking about congestion, which ultimately is the estimation of right and left-sided filling pressures, and then perfusion. So thinking about our non-invasive estimation of maybe cardiac index. So if we could start with congestion, how do we begin to estimate a patient's level of congestion by sort of signs and symptoms? Absolutely, Alex. So when we think about congestion, there, it turns out there's a, a number of signs and symptoms that are useful. And if you think about the history and physical exam, the number of variables that one could acquire, it could be 200. So it's important that you kind of boil it down to the key ones. And when you talk about congestion, you really can boil it down to just several of them. The most important, and Jay Cohn kind of emphasized this, is the jugular venous pressure. If the neck veins are up, the patient is usually congested. and the neck veins are not up, they're not. We can talk more about that hopefully later. 
There are other symptoms, and it turns out orthopnea, when the patient's dyspneic in the supine position, that also turns out to be a very helpful sign. In fact, when we first looked at this in the ESCAPE database, the ESCAPE was the large randomized trial that looked at the use of swine gans catheters in patients with heart failure. Those were the only two findings out of all the history and physical exam that were useful or had the most utility, specifically for detecting an elevated wedge pressure. So at that point, we advocated if you want to assess congestion, really hone in on the neck veins and orthopnea. There are other things one can look for if rapid development of edema, rapid ascites, that, that can be helpful. There's a sign when you look at the blood pressure response to the Valsalva maneuver. It turns out in the literature, this is probably the best sign, but the challenge is it's hard to find the blood pressure cuffs to do this. But if a patient performs a Valsalva maneuver, you basically ask them to bear down. And if the blood pressure stays up for 10 seconds during that strain phase, in the literature, that turns out to be probably the best evidence that the person has elevated left ventricular flowing pressure. You don't see that done often, just again, because of the logistics of finding a blood pressure cup, I think, and, and unfamiliarity with that. So most people would say kind of do look for orthotony in the neck veins. It was interesting because our group noticed that many of our patients were coming to us and telling us that they were short of breath when they were bending down, like when they tie their shoes, for example. And so we had a research group about this. I brought this up and people said, yeah, my patients tell me that also. And we had this heated debate about could that itself be a symptom of heart failure, which really had not been well described at that point. And so we decided we'd set off and test this. And it turned out we took patients to the cath lab. And when you ask if they have this symptom, which by the way, we called, and we deliberately did that so that patients would kind of understand what we're talking about. And when we studied patients who did or did not have bendotomy, it turned out that it was associated with elevated filling pressure, specifically an elevated wedge pressure. So we thought that, in fact, this could be a new symptom of heart failure. And this was really led by then a fellow, now my colleague, Dr. Jennifer Thibodeau, and showed that, in fact, it's a reproducible symptom. We tested before in, in the cath lab, and it was this marker of elevated left ventricular filling pressure, which subsequently has been tested really around the world and has been shown to be a, a reasonable marker of a congestion and heart failure. So I think for that, to assess congestion, I would advocate in a decompensated heart failure, acute and chronic, focus in on orthopnea and neck veins and, and the presence of bendopnea. I was taught in medical school, you listen for rowels. And it turns out, though, that when you look at patients who have kind of chronic heart failure, acute on chronic heart failure, most of the time the air spaces are clear. And in fact, when I hear something in the lungs in my patient population, most of the time that turns out to be a pulmonary process and not decompensated heart failure. Now, if you go to the emergency room and you're seeing patients who are presenting with kind of flash pulmonary edema or acute MI, which is kind of different than the patient population I typically see, yeah, those people flood their lungs. But for patients who have chronic heart failure who are decompensated, the air spaces are almost always clear. And when I hear rowels, it turns out more likely to be a pulmonary disease than it is decompensated heart failure. Wow, Dr. Dresner, that was a ton, a ton of pearls, just to reflect on some of them. So the Vesalva maneuver, the idea is that patients with really high preload, almost extra preload, don't get as much affected during the strain phase during Valsalva when they would generally have less preload and therefore would have a drop in blood pressure because of that. But because patients with heart failure have kind of like an extra water tank, so to speak, in their heart, they don't have that response. Is that what you're telling us? Yeah. So the strain phase basically drops the, the return of the blood to the left ventricle and it drops preload, which is why the blood pressure typically goes down. So there's multiple phases, but you strain, and in everyone, you increase intrathoracic pressure. Everyone, the blood pressure should go up for one or two beats by 10 millimeters. That's just the strain phase. But if you don't have high left ventricular filling pressures, the return to the left ventricle falls, and your blood pressure then drops. That's phase two. But if you have elevated left ventricular filling pressures, that won't happen because the, the filling pressures are high, and so they don't drop, and you don't get this decrease in blood pressure. So it's kind of a dichotomous response. The blood pressure goes up on everyone for a couple beats. If it stays up, they're wet. If it goes back down, they're not wet. And, and interestingly, that is a left ventricular phenomenon, not a right ventricular. So we might get into talking about discordance, but that might actually help pick out discordance also. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. And then another tidbit about the bendopnea. First of all, when I was starting as an intern, we were not using that term. But by the time I was a cardiology fellow, it was literally, I mean, if it was a, it was a positive, a pertinent positive or a pertinent negative on everybody's physical exam. So kudos to you and your team for really disseminating that amazing pearl. And shout out to the curious clinicians who are a podcast that 
asked the question why, and they dedicated a whole episode recently to uh, Ben Dapnia citing your work. And so that's Hannah Abrams, Avi Cooper, and Tony Brew, who did a, just a great job discussing it. So That's awesome. Music to my ears. And I had to give kudos to Dr. Thibodeau, who really was instrumental and, and really led that as a fellow. So it was an incredible addition. And it was funny because when that got published, a lot of my friends around the country were like, we, we knew that. Why didn't we publish that? I was like, I don't know. I mean, it was like in front of everyone for all these years, but no one ever really described it before. Once you know about it, though, I guarantee you, you will see it all the time. Uh, patients will tell you that. So interesting. Again, lots of amazing clinical pearls. Let's go back to our patient in clinic. So he tells us about one to two weeks of this sort of increasing shortness of breath, especially at night. He's actually moved to his recliner to sleep. He's also had loss of appetite and some kind of rapid swelling in his lower extremities. So it looks like by history, uh, he does have some evidence of congestion. Regarding his physical exam, JVP, at least for me, has been such a difficult skill to master. Do you have any tips and tricks on how we can start to master measuring the JVP? Yeah, Alex, that's a great question. And I love talking about this because it is the key finding. And, and, and I do have some tips, I would say. So first of all, tip number one is find someone who knows how to read the neck veins because you need someone to show you how to do it. Tip number two is you can look at 100 people with normal neck veins and you're not going to learn much. If you look at two people who have elevated neck veins, you're going to learn how to read elevated neck veins. So you, the best way to go is to go to a heart failure clinic where people will have neck veins and hopefully the heart failure physicians or nurse practitioners will know how to read it and can show you one day, usually interns after one rounding session with us, they'll get it. So how do you do it? When you look at neck veins, there's a couple of key things. One is when I was training, I didn't understand that you're not actually looking for like a venous structure. I was looking like, like in your hand, you see a vein and I'm looking like, I don't see anything. It's a pulsation. You want to look for a pulsation. So that's the first step. The second tip is look at both sides of the neck. Sometimes you see it on the right. Sometimes you see it on the left. In a small minority of people, you actually see it right in the middle of the neck. So I don't understand why there's anatomic variation like that, but some people it's crystal clear on the left, some people it's crystal clear on the right. Having done this with a lot of people, then you, you see the pulsation. The next question is, well, how do I know, is that carotid or is that the jugular vein? All the time people ask me that. And there's a variety of ways to do this, but what I think the most reliable way to do this is you take your finger and you press below the pulsation. If the pulsation goes away, it's a venous impulse. If the pulsation persists, it's a carotid artery. Having, again, done this with many rounders now, it's not just laying your finger on the neck. You actually have to exert a little pressure because you're overcoming the 15 millimeters of mercury in the venous structure. You're not going to be able to overcome the 80 millimeters in the carotid artery, even if you press hard. So you have to press hard. If it goes away, it is the jugular vein. Another important tip is that the high venous pressures, and of course, these are the people who are sick, and these are the ones that you don't want to miss. The high venous pressures are seen better when the patient is sitting upright. When you take a patient who has a high venous pressure, and you're examining them kind of in supine or even 30-degree angle, oftentimes that impulse gets buried behind the earlobe, and you don't see it because it's so high, it's buried high up there. So since you don't, those are the very people you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss the high venous pressures. So you should always examine a person at least one time, at least in 60, if not, you know, sitting upright so that you don't miss them. Now, of course, if you're in clinic, you're sitting upright anyway. They're sitting upright anyway. You're talking to them. You may as well start examining them while you're, you're taking your history. In the hospital, you have a hospital bed. Don't get lulled into it. And, and if they're supine, raise the bed up and make sure you're, just, you're not missing the high one. That is an important tip. And then finally, some people, you can't see an internal jugular vein no matter what, but you see an external jugular vein. And as long as you see the, the, the blood moving, it's respirophasic. So because what you're worried about is there could be a valve in the external jugular, and then that only reflects the pressure inside the thoracic cavity. So you have to make sure if you're using the EJ, you have to make sure that you see it moving. Okay. So those are a variety of things. I always examine the person upright, look both sides. If I see the impulse, I press below. If it goes away, then it's venous. If it stays, it's carotid. This is just amazing. I don't know how a cardiator could spend time better than this. I mean, these are such basic and fundamental skills that are so core to everything we do. But, you know, early in your career, maybe you don't have the skills down. And later in your career, people start rushing. They have to get through a series of patients. They have to go to clinic. They have to get through other things. And I have to recognize one of my attendings here, Dr. Mazin Hanna, 
who, no matter how many patients you still have around on, no matter if it's a weekend or not, or what else is going on, you'll walk into a patient's room and say, oh, let's miss her, miss so-and-so. Why don't, why don't we get on the bed here? Why don't we reposition you? Why don't we adjust the bed, the pillow, the height, everything, so that way we can properly examine you, put our hands on you, make that therapeutic bond, and diagnose what your hemodynamic state is today so we can effectively change your management for today and not go by you know the numbers that we are seeing on the chart. It's just incredible. And if you weren't in uh, COVID era, Dr. Dresner, I wish I could just uh, fly down to UT Southwestern and round with you for a few days. <laughs> we are well on our way to being masters of the JVP and the estimation of right atrial pressure as a venous structure. But you mentioned how we can use the right atrial pressure by the JVP as one of the measures that correlates well to pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. But in using the JVP as a marker for their overall fluid status, how do we connect right atrial pressures to estimating congestion on the left side? Yeah, that's that's a key question. And it's a very important concept that people get. Because as you say, the jugular veins, of course, reflect the right atrial pressure, but really what we're trying to do is estimate the wedge pressure, the left atrial pressure. It turns out, and it did not have to turn out this way, but it did turn out this way, that between 70 and 75% of the time in chronic heart failure, the right atrial pressure mirrors the left atrial pressure. Meaning if the right atrial pressure is high, the wedge is high. If the right atrial pressure is low, the wedge is low. And this is now, we've looked at this in a number of databases, and it's remarkable how consistent this relationship is. 75% of the time, sometimes it's 70, sometimes it's 80. On average, 75% of the cases, the two mirror each other. I think about it as the neck veins then are kind of a faithful recapitulation of the left side of filling pressures. That's the good news. We have something to use. By the way, that relationship, for example, in acute myocardial infarction is not the same. That relationship in someone who has primary pulmonary hypertension will not be the same. But in chronic heart failure, and you have to be careful you understand you're using it in which condition, that relationship is very solid. Now, the good news is that 70, 75% of the time, they do mirror each other. But that means 25 to 30% of the time, they don't mirror each other. And we call the mirroring group the concordant group. And then the ones where they don't mirror each other, we call those the discordant group. And that's where it really starts to get interesting. And you have two phenotypes, subphenotypes, if you will, One group has a low right atrial pressure, even though their wedge pressure is high. The other group on the other side of the spectrum, if you will, has a high right atrial pressure, higher than it should be relative to the wedge pressure. We've now started to uh, label these. The one who has the low right atrial pressure with the high wedge, we call those a compensated RV group, compensated RV pattern. And that's because, and there's some data now suggesting that, and it makes sense, the right is pressure is low, the wedge is high, the right ventricle is probably still compensating. The other group is the really interesting one, the high right atrial pressure to wedge pressure group. We call those the right-left equalizers, which makes sense because the right atrial pressure starts to approach the wedge pressure. The average relationship of an RA and a wedge, if you take large numbers of people, it's about half. The RA is usually about half the wedge. The right-left equalizer group, those are people who the right atrial pressure is more than, say, two-thirds of the wedge. For example, someone with a RA pressure of 18 and a wedge of 20. For a wedge of 20, you really should have an RA of only 10. This person has an RA of 18 with a wedge of 20. The other side of the spectrum, the compensated RV, low RA, high wedge, that might be an RA of 5 with a wedge of 30. If you have a wedge of 30, your RA really should be 15. If it's less than a third, we call that a compensated RV group. Now, if you start to think about this, it gets fun because the compensated RV group, these are people, they're going to come in, they're going to have a high wedge of low right atrial pressure. They're going to tell you they're short of breath. You're going to say, well, Drasner says the neck veins are the best thing. And you don't see the neck veins. You're not wet. So you have to remember that on the compensated RV group, you may be full. And then the ones, though, that are worrisome, and I have to say, I do like taking care of ill patients, and these are these sicker patients, the right-left equalizer group. So they're going to come in, you're going to see the neck veins up, those earlobes are going to wiggle, and you're going to crank up your diuretics. But the wedge is not as high as you expect, and you're going to run into hypotension or worsening renal function. So those two groups, the extremes, things are not going to go the way you expect when you're basing your decision-making on the clinical evaluation. So this is a limitation of the exam. You just have to remember we're using largely a marker of right-sided filling pressure, 
Fortunately, that usually reflects the left side, but not always. And when things aren't going right, you have to remember that, that you don't have a direct measure of the wedge pressure. Wow, Dr. Dranster, this is super useful and just absolutely amazing. And uh, luckily, we have the the uh, videos on because you could see, uh, I see Amit and, and Alex just like, just smiling away at it, pearl after pearl after pearl is like light bulb after light bulb here. So I'm glad we had the bandwidth to leave the videos on. I love thinking about further subclassifying our patients based on their invasive hemodynamics and really thinking about them in this way. And so I'm hearing what you're saying. There's the compensated RV group, and then there's the right and left equalizers. How do you explain a compensated RV? You have these elevated wedge pressures. Why is the RV not seeing those elevated pressures? And how is it compensating? Is it that it's expanding and you know growing its volume capacity? Or is there another change? Do you happen to know? Yeah, it's a great question about who are these people in these various phenotypes and why are they in these phenotypes? For the compensated RV group, I've always thought that that's just earlier in the disease process. And there's a large literature out there. If you look at patients who have low left ventricular ejection fractions, the ones who are doing well are the ones who the right ventricular ejection fraction is fine. And when you see the low right ventricular ejection fraction, that's the group that really is sick. So I think the compensated RV group is probably along that spectrum where their right ventricle is you're just early in the disease process and isn't as diseased as it will be later in the disease. That's my belief. There isn't a large wealth of data to support that phenotyping yet about that, except we do know the right side is better in the compensated RV group than the other groups. But that's what I've always thought is that it's it's, it's just not as advanced. Really fascinating. Uh, Just thinking about how you would explain the different phenotypes based on the pressure volume loops, right? So if you have a higher afterload, like if, so if you have a higher LV preload, that means you have a higher RV afterload, right? And so uh, the, the right side will be taller, but if you have the same like ESPVR relationship, then you should still be able to deal with the entire afterload and still end up with the same diastolic relationship at the end, like in terms of diastolic filling. I've never seen someone like take these patterns and do like PV loops, which you could do. It's a great idea. The cardio nerd study right there. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're on, yeah. You could put those sensors in and model it and realize it'd be really fascinating. Yeah, no, that would be, that was, now I will say for the compensated RV pattern, I always thought that you would be able to find those people by doing hepatodrugal reflux. Because it turns out that hepatodrugal reflux does correlate with an elevated wedge pressure. But it turns out, we, we've actually, we have a study that's under review now, and it turns out that the clinical exam, it's hard to pick out the discordance actually on the clinical exam. When you do that PV loop study, Dr. Drasner, maybe just to include a cardi nurse in the acknowledgements. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are in. You guys are in. The, you guys will be acknowledged for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'd suggest Alex as a first author. Anyways. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, Let's go. I'll take it on. <laughs> so, Dr. Drasner, when patients seem to fall into the subphenotypes based on the right atrial pressure and the wedge pressure in your compensated RV idea, and then your right and left equalizer patient. So you have these two phenotypes, which really clearly the, the treatment algorithm is going to vary between the two. Are there anything specific to the history and physical exam findings that we can use to identify which patient is in front of you? Yeah, it's, it, right now, unfortunately, we don't really have any good clinical markers to identify patients who are discordant. But a big clue is that as you're basing your decisions on your exam, if things are not going the way you expect, then realize that they may be discordant. So what would that look like? That would be a person who says they're very short of breath, but they don't look congested to you. That's the compensated RV group. Or on the other side, the patients who still look congested and you're trying to decongest them and their renal function's falling apart or they're getting hypotensive. So if you can't decongest someone and they're left with these high right atrial pressures, in the differential is that this may be a right-left equalizer. Maybe that's why I'm having trouble. And, And that is one of two hemodynamic causes of worsening renal function in as you're trying to diurese someone that we'll talk about another one later that I think it's worth knowing. If you, you see someone, you're diuresing, and if their neck veins are up and their cranium starts rising, I would wonder about whether they're a right-left equalizer. And that might be some patient that you may need to define the hemodynamics by putting in a right heart catheter. So when things aren't going the way you expect based on your clinical assessment, you have to remember that maybe they're a discordant group. That is the clinical clue right now. We don't really have uh, prospectively a way to find something on exam and say, oh, this person may be discordant. 
So it sounds like based on the individual patient and individual hospitalization, we can think about what clinical clues we might have to predict what phenotype they're in. Can we base patients' phenotype on subsequent hospitalizations on a prior hospitalization? Do patients tend to stay within these phenotypes or is there some sort of predictable progression that we could identify? That's an excellent question. There's there's not a wealth of data. There are some data that we've looked at. And in general, the data available suggests that it's less likely that you move from the extremes. So what I mean is a person who has an RA of 5 and a wedge of 30, it's unlikely that they're going to come in with an RA of 18 and a wedge of 20. So you're, you're going to move from the, there's a lot of movement from the extremes to the middle, but much less movement from one extreme to the other extreme, which makes sense because if someone has an RA of 15 and a wedge of 30, you wouldn't expect them then to have an RA of 18 and a wedge of 20. So you can exploit that if uh, clinically, if you knew, for example, stay with me on this. If you knew that a person was compensated RV, meaning say the RA is five and the wedge is 30 from a previous right heart cath, and now they come in and you see their neck veins up, it's very unlikely that the wedge would not be up because they're probably not going to be a right left equalizer. Okay. So if you knew they were compensated RV and then they come in, their neck veins are up, you could pretty much say that their wedge is going to be high. And then the flip is also true. If someone has an RA of 18 and a wedge of 20 the first time, and now they come in and you see that their RA is low, it's unlikely that their wedge is going to be high. They're not going to be a compensated RV group if they were a right-left equalizer the first time. So I do think it's worthwhile if you send the patient to get a right heart catheter, what we do is we note what the RA to wedge ratio is at that time. And then that way, when you see them back in clinic, you have that information. So if I have a patient who comes in, I mean, I have to do this all the time. A patient came in, they were right-left equalized. I see them in clinic and I'm like, oh my God, I got to blast you with diuretics. But at least my note says, no, wait a minute, they're a right-left equalizer. They may not be as wet as I think they are, at least on the left side. So I I do keep that information handy. I I find that to be useful subsequently. Do you um, also add the caveat that you have to appreciate your patient's valvular situation? So if they have valvular disease or severe pulmonary hypertension, does that ruin this paradigm? One cause, for example, of a right-left equalizer, of course, would be someone who has significant tricuspid valve disease. If you had tricuspid stenosis, then they would fit in that pattern. So, so these subphenotypings, I'm really kind of talking about garden variety, low EF patients without predominant or dominant valvular abnormalities like tricuspid pathology, for example. It turned out that when you look at the uh, right-left equalizer, one of the risk factors, at least in a couple of the studies, were patients who did have superimposed pulmonary hypertension, which that does make sense because if you have superimposed pulmonary hypertension, you would expect the right side to be struggling more than it typically would. And so their right atrial pressure would be high because perhaps made higher than it should be because they don't only have elevated left filling pressures, but it's also facing the pulmonary hypertension. And that might be why they're a right-left equalizer. It's not a consistent finding. I mean, there are people who don't have pulmonary hypertension are still in the right-left equalizer, but it's one of the causes. If you think about it, another, I'll give you another example of a, of a right-left equalizer. Some of the cardiomyopathies, like I've seen patients with genetic cardiomyopathies that, of course, ARVC, you would expect to be like that. But I've seen other weird, less common genetic cardiomyopathies that seem to disproportionately affect the right ventricle. And those patients are also in this right-left equalizer group. And of course, I'm sure you're all thinking, well, what about restrictive cardiomyopathy? But what I'm saying, and, and that is true, elevated equalized biventricular filling pressures. But, but what I'm saying is that there are people who seem to have garden variety systolic heart failure. This is not a restricted heart. And yet they still have a hemodynamic pattern where the right edge pressure and wedge pressure, the right edge pressure is approximating the wedge pressure, even though they don't have a typical restrictive cardiomyopathy. Yeah, and that really makes sense. And so based on our discussion, I would have to imagine that the compensated right ventricular patient would be better off in terms of prognosis than the right and left equalizers. Is that the case? And could you speak more on that? Yeah, we, we, when this, uh, we first had developing this scheme, there was a pretty big debate about that. People were arguing that the compensated RV may actually do worse because they may not be detected. Their, their elevated filling pressures may not be detected, and so they may be, have worse outcomes. But it turned out that was not the right logic because their right ventricles were healthier. And there's a wealth of evidence showing that patients with heart failure, the right ventricle healthy, they're going to have a better outcome. So in fact, it turns out that the right-left equalizers are the ones who have worse prognosis. They're at risk of renal failure. That's been shown in now several databases. There's an association between the, the RA to wedge ratio and worsening renal function. 
And at least in two databases, the right-left equalizers had a worse outcome in multivariate analysis compared to patients who didn't have that hemodynamic pattern. So in my mind, I think the right-left equalizers, these are the, really the sick people, whether it's RA of 18, wedge of 20, or sometimes you'll see RAs of 28 and a wedge of 30. I mean, as you get to really end stage, you see markedly elevated biventricular filling pressures, and those are really ill patients. Yeah, when I think about heart failure, I've got so many different ways of classifying and categorizing patients with heart failure, their, their class, their stage, their ejection fraction, their ideology. This is a new uh, item I'm adding to my toolkit to think about this idea of concordance. But you think about how pertinent this is to our day-to-day clinical evaluation of a patient. I, it never actually, it never clicked to me that you could have this phenotype of a patient who would be an RV compensated phenotype where their JVP is completely normal and they're huffing and puffing. And it's actually because they have fluid overload. Traditionally for that patient, I'd be like, well, let's, let's get the PFTs. Let's check your you know hemoglobin level. Let's look for other causes. Uh, but this really is, I think, changing my approach, Dr. Drasner, and opening my, my, my eyes a little bit to the entire range and complexity within heart failure. I really hope everyone listens to this. This is, this is for interns, medical students, and senior cardiologists alike. This is phenomenal. So getting back to our patient, we've established how we think about congestion and all the nuances involved. But to complete the hemodynamic assessment, let's, let's really understand our patient's profile here. And to do that, we need to figure out what is the perfusion status. So Dr. Drasner, can you walk us through your approach to the assessment of perfusion? Absolutely. So, so now we're going to try to decide, is our patient warm or cold? And as opposed to congestion, where we're pretty good about that, we don't get fooled that often. The state of perfusion, the warm cold is difficult. Here we can look at things like proportional pulse pressure. This is the difference between the pulse pressure, systolic, diastolic over the systolic. And if that falls under 25%, that is considered to be a marker of low output. Of course, cool lower extremities. And I tell my trainees, you feel the legs above the ankle. And if one leg feels cold, make sure you feel the other leg to make sure it's not peripheral vascular disease. And then sometimes people are sleepy, you know, obtunded as they, as they really progress. But really, it's the, it's the pulse pressure and the extremities. But there's a problem. The problem is that when, when someone is in low output and you feel their low output, you're going to be right most of the time. The specificity is good. But our sensitivity is not good at all. It's, it's, it's poor. And I say this literally. I, on a daily basis, I assess a patient and I say, oh, they're warm. And I send them down to the cath lab and I get a call. The cardiac index is 1.8. I have given up. I, I cannot figure out how to pick those people out. The ones who are cold, you send them down and yeah, they have a low output. Everyone agrees. But many of the people who are warm, are cold. So I've started to say this. I sum it up this way. If they're cold, they're cold. But if they're warm, they may still be cold. If they're cold, they're cold. But if they're warm, they may still be cold. And it's important because the reason that's important is because if you have a patient and they have heart failure and you're treating them, and let's say the kidneys are, the, the cranians rise and kidneys are falling apart, maybe they're in low output, even though in my mind, I'm like, oh, they're profile B, the warm and wet group. But I have to remember that's the limitation of the clinical exam, as far as I can tell, at least in my hands, having done this. I cannot pick those people out. It's a diagnostic test. There's nothing magical about it. This is the limitation of the diagnostic test. The sensitivity of the exam for picking out low cardiac index is very poor. And so you just have to remember that. And when you're keeping in your differential, if things are not going the way you expect, Based on your clinical evaluation, remember that your clinical exam, you're kind of, there's a blind spot. It's people who seem warm on exam, they still have a low cardiac index when you measure it. So that, that, that's my comments on that axis. It's a more challenging one than the congestion. We don't really get fooled that often anymore in congestion, but we get fooled all the time on the perfusion status. Dr. Dresner, these are phenomenal pearls. And I actually remember one of my uh, first consults as a cardiology fellow, and I, I'm not exactly sure why I was consulted about this patient, but I was uh, asked to examine a patient who had a cold leg. And so there was a question about whether or not the patient had some sort of vascular compromise. So I'm feeling this patient's leg, and I notice that their blood pressure is on the softer side, maybe 90 systolic, not, not too bad, but I feel like I'm like, yeah, it's pretty cold. So obviously, I do what everybody would do, feel the other leg. And I'm like, the other leg's kind of cold. And so then I was like, let me feel the hand. And the hand was cold. 
And then I realized that the whole patient was just cold. And then uh, I was like, I think we should look for more of a centralized process here. So we ended up getting an echo and he actually ended up having a hemorrhagic pericardial um, effusion that was causing tamponade. And it was like an early tamponade situation. And it was my first activation of the cath lab as a fellow. I was really nervous, but I was very rewarded because as soon as they they uh, removed that fluid or blood, it was, it turned out the patient actually got warm. So it really highlights that. But you know, our patient here didn't exhibit any of these typical features of low output, but it is so important to remember that when they're cold, as you said, they're cold, but if they're warm, they could still be cold. And we have to really remember that. And now that we've learned how to assess congestion and perfusion to estimate our patient's hemodynamic status and establish that Mr. Hef Refner is likely warm and wet or in hemodynamic profile B, how does your management approach vary according to the hemodynamic profiles? Absolutely. So why are we even doing this whole thing in terms of classifying? So first of all, uh, I'll start off every now and then you'll have a patient who's referred to you who, for heart failure and you examine them and their exam is stone cold normal. And it may be what I'll call a mimic a heart failure. I had a patient, for example, got referred to me and he did have uh, cardiomyopathy and he came to me reports of being very dysmic and he had one of those nasal athletic strips on his nose. I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I can't get air in. I, I literally can't get air into me. So I examined him. He was totally compensated. And it turned out he had a sinus mass. So this was a case where, yes, he had dyspnea, but his exam suggested he was profile A, and it was a mimic of heart failure. Another example was when I was a fellow, and I got called down at the end of my heart failure fellowship, patient with cardiomyopathy, presenting to the ER, go in and examine him. He had rowels up to the apices. I mean, everywhere. And, and his neck veins were down. I'm like, this is very different than every other patient I've seen this year. Turned out he had amiodarone lung toxicity, not heart failure. And the exam, by a rational approach to the exam, suggesting he wasn't congested, alerted us to the fact that this may actually be a pulmonary process. So, so that's helpful if you, if, you, if you could put your person in category where they're not congested and they're well perfused, point you away from heart failure. Now, let's say it is a patient with heart failure, though. Patient gets admitted. And the question is, how do you know whether you need to add inotropes or not? And if you didn't have a rational way to at least start the process of saying whether the person's low output or not, it'd be very difficult to decide whether to add inotropes or not. So at least it gives you some rational basis to begin to decide, should I add inotropes or not? If they're warm and wet, profile B, if there's any justice in the world, they should diurese <laughs> just with diuretics, right? They should, they should, they should respond well. If they're profile C, by the way, what I call the dreaded profile C, these are the cold and wet group, the, the sick people, low output, high filling pressure. Those are the people who you're probably going to need to make a difficult decision and add something beyond diuretics. That might be a vasodilator. It might be an inotrope, but you're probably going to need to add something beyond diuretics. Now, I recognize, remember, we said that some of the people that we think are warm and wet profile B are actually low output. And the clue, though, is I'll think there be, I'll start my diuretic, they're not responding, and then ding, 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 oh, maybe this is one of those people who, even though I think they're warm, they're actually cold. So I think it's at least a helpful way to start in terms of the initial therapy in the, in the hospitalization. And when you, when you start looking at this, about two-thirds of the patients who are typically admitted are profile B. You don't even have to worry about thinking about inotropes or vasodilators, diuretics. And then that one-third of the people that you think are C that's where you start making these more difficult decisions. And then you're standing ready. I'm watching my profile Bs. If they're not responding after I escalate my diuretics, then I think, oh, maybe they actually profile C and not profile B. And I, I may need to define the hemodynamics or do something beyond just the diuretics. So I think it gives you a rational basis for how to add therapies beyond diuretics. And Dr. Trasner, it sounds like we can become pretty good with picking up congestion, especially with practice and recalibration and rounding with the right person but it sounds like we're not very good at picking up low flow. And if somebody like you has given up, there's definitely no hope left for me. But that worries me a little bit, right? Because we're not talking about whether or not we can pick up stool impaction, right? We're talking about picking up, perfusing the brain, the kidneys, the gut. So I guess my, my question is, when do we need to go in, uh, to the heart of the matter? When do we need to put that right heart catheter in? What is your internal gauge for saying, this is a situation where I need to go beyond the clinical exam get in the sheath and get the, get the real numbers here. 
Yeah, this is a absolutely critical question. When is a right heart catheter indicated? If you go to the guidelines, the guidelines in there, we say if basically the patient's ill and not getting better when you're basing your therapy on your clinical exam, that's an appropriate indication. So it is true that we can pick out the people who we think they're warm, they're cold. Usually those are not necessarily people who have profound end organ damage. Usually a lot of those people are people who are cold. I, let me also point out, I, there's a flip side. Suppose we were better at picking out those people who, for example, are tolerating beta blockers, but their cardiac index is 1.8. I don't know it's 1.8 because on exam, they seem warm. But let's say I did have a tool that let me accurately say it was 1.8. Could I inadvertently lead to decisions that actually would worsen the outcome? Maybe I'd back off my beta blockers, even though they were clinically tolerating it, if I really knew their, their cardiac index was low. So it's a two-edged sword. I, I do think about that. If we really knew all those warm people who were cold, but who are clinically well, could we paradoxically end up hurting them by making decisions that may not be in their benefit? The key thing is, is the patient well or not? I mean, if the patient's not well, and I mean by well, if you're starting to see end organ damage, then moving towards defining the hemodynamics rapidly moves up on my decision making. And, you know, I should probably backtrack. Stool impaction can be absolutely terrible and life-threatening at times, but low flow states are just more relevant to my practice. The shaking of the head is awesome. Go ahead. Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> take, us, take us far away from stool impaction. <laughs> Okay, great. So now that we've established Mr. Hef-Refner's likely profile B, we'll send him over to the hospital and hope that our initiation of IV diuretics will be all that he needs. I'm wondering if we can take a step back and think about now that we've established his hemodynamic status, what does this mean as the bigger picture for our heart failure patients? And what does a patient's hemodynamic status tell us about their risk coming into the hospital and their overall prognosis? Yeah, that's, a, that's another really important point because the clinical exam not only allows you to estimate the underlying hemodynamic status, but it does provide a lot of prognostic information. And it is now irrefutable that clinical congestion is a bad thing. Every database that looks at it, whether you're in the hospital, whether you're in the ambulatory setting, whether you're transitioning, if you are congested, your risk of adverse events is increased considerably even after you adjust for multiple other well-known prognostic markers. It's actually amazing how powerful clinical congestion is as an adverse risk predictor, including now uh, recent data from Paradigm suggesting even after you adjust for natriuretic peptide levels. So clinical congestion is a bad thing. And whichever setting you're in, your patient's at high risk if they're left congested. Not entirely clear why is clinical congestion such a bad thing? The pathway from clinical congestion to adverse outcomes is still not as well delineated given how common this is and how important it is. I think that's an area that really does need more investigation. We do know that there's venous congestion leads to worsening renal function, and we know that, that that's part of it, and we know that liver congestion is bad. We know that it may contribute to cardiac cachexia, but there's a lot that I think is still not understood about why is clinical congestion such a bad player. But when you have your patient and they're congested, that's bad news. You know, under the care of Dr. Alex Pipolis, our patient has responded incredibly well to diuresis and is feeling so much better. But to be honest, he's not 100% back to his healthy baseline and still does have an elevated JVP, but he's worried about losing his job if he doesn't get back to work. Uh, and he also has an ailing mother at home that he takes care of, so he's worried about her also. He thanks us for our care and asks us to be discharged given all of the obligations he does have to get back to in his real life. We often try to get patients feeling the best they can prior to hospital discharge, but it's not always possible. And our patients are living in a world that is that transcends or goes beyond just the walls of our hospital and our care. So Dr. Drasner, do we know what being discharged without being back to euvolemic baseline means for Mr. Hef-Refner? Yeah. So, so first of all, if a patient gets admitted to the hospital and they're congested, that's a bad marker. Then as you follow them through the hospitalization, if you take a person who's congested, but you decongest them, versus a person who leaves congested, the decongested person is much less likely to have complications following the discharge. Then if you look, for example, even a month or two later, if the patient is congested at that follow-up visit, their outcome is bad also. So whenever congestion happens, it's a bad deal. And you do gain information though during the hospitalization because if a person starts congested and they leave decongested, they're going to do better than if they still leave congested. So you, that's one of the nice things about the exam is that you can do this serially and you kind of get trajectories. 
and seeing someone clinically decongest, that outcome is going to be better than if you just, what's called compromised with congestion, where you try your best, but you just can't get them dry. And you say, uncle, they got to go home. Mom needs to be taken care of at home. And you discharge them. And that's called compromising with congestion. You're kind of fooling yourself because they're probably not going to do well if, if they're leaving with, with congestion. But you know, sometimes that, that's the best you can do. If you can't decongest someone, you have to start to think, that's a pretty sick person. Maybe I need to consider them for advanced therapies. That's a clue. If you can't decongest someone, that maybe they're sicker than you realize. Again, that would be a point where it might be worth defining the hemodynamics and understanding how ill they are, especially if the person may be a candidate for advanced therapies. But what's interesting is that even the people who are decongested, and this is from Dr. Giorgiotti's work from Everest trial, even the patients who are decongested, their event rates are much lower than if they're congested. But still, the event rates of patients who get discharged from an index hospitalization, even in a decongested state, is pretty bad. And it's not clear, was it something that happened in the hospital, or was it just the fact that they got admitted in the congested state somehow fundamentally altered the natural history. We know, for example, that if you look at the natural history of chronic heart failure and you look at outcomes in terms of mortality versus the acutely decompensated, it's a big inflection point. Once the person gets admitted for decompensated heart failure, they're on a totally different inflection uh, trajectory in terms of their subsequent mortality. I mean, a chronic heart failure patient, maybe it's a 7% annual mortality. All comers for index decompensated heart failure, it's like 30% one-year mortality. So there's something fundamentally bad about being congested leading to the hospitalization. What that is, is not known. Some people think maybe there's myocardial ischemia, maybe there's neurohormonal activation, maybe something that we're doing to patients in the hospital. It's not really understood why is that such a dramatic change in the natural history once a person decompensates, but it's very clear that 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 happens. So the decongested person, they go home if they stay decongested, they're going to do much better. If you see them back and they recongest, that's a bad sign. And then again, you have to start to think, is this an advanced therapies candidate? Because now two hospitalizations in one year, that is a classic warning sign. That is probably when I talk to people about who should you refer to an advanced heart failure physician, that is the number one clue. Two hospitalizations in one year. So that means I send my patient home, they recongest and they get readmitted. That's two hospitalizations right there. You have to think about advanced therapies. The mortality rate of that person with two hospitalizations in one year probably is approaching 35, 40%, maybe higher in the next year. I mean, it's a, it's a really, at that point, it's really become a lethal illness. So those are, those are the, the power of congestion, staying decongested or, or being recongested when you think about natural history. That is very, very profound. And, and particularly, as you kind of said, a setup for somebody leaving the hospital who's not totally decongested is a setup for a repeat hospitalization, which really clocks them in as somebody that you really need to be worried about. But I have a question. So in terms of compromising with congestion, I see two types. One is the physician compromising with congestion, and one is the patient compromising with congestion. The physician who's compromising with congestion, has the patient. She is trying bloody hard to get them dry, but the hospital admins are knocking at the door and saying, Mr. Smith has been here for so many days. Get him out of the hospital. I don't care. And so you discharge that patient. That patient has a certain prognosis. And I'm wondering if you feel that prognosis may be different than the patient who's like, after three days is saying like, the Netflix in the hospital is not doing it for me. I got to go home. I'm leaving today. But you may have gotten him decongested two more days. You say two more days, two more days, we'll get you to, but he just leaves. So do those two patients have different prognoses, even though they're both going home wet? Yeah. First I have to say, we have a new hospital, these beautiful TVs. So we actually have people like, especially in Cowboys games, they're not going to leave the hospital because this TV is awesome and they want to watch it. I don't know. The, the difference of uh, that, you know, someone who's kind of leaving AMA versus someone who you've compromised, you've done your best. I don't think anyone's ever really defined that to my knowledge. I, I will say though, this compromise with congestion, how do you define that? For example, like on a heart failure service, we would say if you leave a, let a patient go home with very high neck veins, we've compromised with congestion. Many other physicians would say, well, there's no peripheral edema. They may not even read the neck veins, and they may consider that person decongested. I will say there's never been a randomized trial, and we have debates about this in our division all the time, about if you randomize people, one strategy is get to full decongestion. The other strategy is let people go home once they're breathing okay, they're free of peripheral edema. 
which one will lead to better outcome? And that randomized trial has never been done. And you have believe, so because there's no data, people, we have people I respect who are on the other side of the fence. I believe that it's worthwhile decongesting them. And I think the power that we now have for in terms of length of stay is because the readmissions are so, uh, hospitals are penalized for that. So if you can reduce readmissions, it's more than an extra one or two day in the hospital is much better than a patient being readmitted. So we have more leeway now that heart failure disease management has become an important component of hospital administrators. It's on their radar because of the penalties being imposed on them. And so we're getting less pushback on that as long as we can keep the readmissions down. That's, I think it's a really important point to set up a program to try to reduce your readmission rate. I personally believe, and I recognize there's still a paucity of data on this, getting to decongestion is important. And it's very practical and, and hopefully our listeners will take this to heart and, and appreciate congestion and then decongest it. But as you said, there's a variety of, of opinions about what is actual congestion. And so do you think that there's a role for additional modalities to help with the assessment of congestion beyond physical exam in the right heart cath? So there are a variety of ways that one could try to detect congestion. And we've talked about some limitations of the exam. By the way, the ability of your nick veins, once you, once you do this, most of the studies that have looked at this, the C statistics are around 0.8. So it's pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. What are other modalities that I use? Well, everyone, natriuretic peptides. I, if I know the natriuretic peptides have come down at discharge, at least I know the prognosis is better. Not that there's ever been any data suggesting that tailoring it to it, of course, doesn't improve outcomes. But if you have a low pro-BNP at discharge stand or 1,000, there's prognostic information on that. I, you know, echoes, I talk to, you know, my trainees more junior than you all, but I say, look, there's a lot of information on the echo way beyond the EF that when you start to think about congestion, if the RV systolic pressure is low, patients are not, assuming you have a good TR jet, they're not going to be wet because as the wedge goes up, the PA pressures have to go up. So that's helpful. Of course, you can look at the IVC and then the mitral inflow pattern. If you see that the person has impaired relaxation, their filling pressure should not be high because if they were high, they would be pseudo-normal. So looking at mitral inflow patterns on echo, RV systolic pressure, the IVC diameter on echo are other modalities. And I suspect in your career, you'll have a handheld echo. And I'm still waiting for the study to do a good exam and a good handheld echo and show that you can improve outcome. I suspect it will be there, but I'm still waiting on, on the data for that. And then plantable uh, PA sensors, the cardiomems is another way of monitoring congestion. And of course, we have one trial that suggested benefit, but the definitive trial, uh, Guide HF, is still ongoing, a large, over 3,000 patients. So we'll know if, if the answer is confirmed and, and duplicated. I'm all for the best modality at this. I'm not saying the exam, but right now, there's not a wealth of evidence supporting these other technologies beyond a good clinical exam. It's so interesting. And I think that it's it's really important to take a step back and think about that there are benefits and you know pitfalls to every sort of piece of information we use to integrate to take care of our patients. Things like JVP, ProBNP, echo data. I'd be interested to know what, what value do you place on a patient's weight as a marker for gauging acute fluid overload when compared to these sort of dry weights we see often in the chart? And what benefit do you see in kind of documenting new dry weights or updated dry weights after making diuretic adjustments? Weight is an absolute fascinating part of the heart failure syndrome. And the reason I say that is because people could present in two different ways. Some patients come to us and they will say, I've lost 20 or 30 pounds. Profound cachexia. Like when you think about someone with cancer, they will look like that. That's one phenotype. Another phenotype is, of course, they come in and they say, I've gained 30 or 40 pounds, and they're massively swollen, tree trunk legs, ascites, whatever, they're 30 or 40 pounds up. So it's this balance because heart failure is a cachectic promoting illness. You have that driving the weight down, and then you have the volume retention which drives the weight up. And so there's this balance between these two. How fast are you accumulating fluid versus how quickly you're losing body weight? The really interesting people are the people I say, hey, what's happened to your weight? And they said, oh, no change in weight at all. But they have like three plus edema. And then I diurese them and they, I unmask the 25 pound real body weight loss that they didn't know because they were just accumulating fluid that happened to be at the same rate as losing body weight. So those are the limitations of, of using this dry weight is that over time, 
if patients are ill, they may stop eating. And then what you think was their dry weight may be way too high because they may have been losing real body weight. Having said all that, if you have a patient and they're rapidly gaining weight, like over a course of a week, they're putting on 10 pounds, that's not going to be, that, that's very helpful. You have to be careful about long periods of dry weights though, because of true changes in body weight may mask the utility of, of, of that so-called dry, dry weight. So I, I use it in the short run and I'm much more cautious in the long run for the reasons of this loss of body weight. By the way, if you have a patient and they're profoundly cachectic and you stabilize them, and then I've seen this repeatedly, patients will start to gain back real body weight as you get them better. So they have like a 40 pound weight loss, like they're the cachectic phenotype and you stabilize them, get them beta blockers, what have you, and they get better. Their weight, they just head back to their old weight. It just, now, of course, they're calling you and saying, my weight's going up, my weight's going up. But in this case, this is real body weight. The only way, the only way I figured it out is those people, you just have to see them and examine them and make sure that they're gaining real body weight, which is probably a good sign because the cachexia is being reversed and not a bad sign that they're being congested, they're developing congestion. So that's an interesting scenario when you have the, those people. And I see real, real body weight gains probably as a positive prognostic variable because their heart failure must be stabilized to let them reverse their cachectic state. So there's a lot of nuances, a long, long answer, but there's a lot of nuances about using weight in heart failure because of the fact that you lose body weight as part of when heart failure gets worse. You, know, you said in that last scenario, you just have to see them and examine them. And that's a perfect segue to our last question for you. Dr. Drasner, you've written extensively about the value of the clinical exam from cultivating a therapeutic patient-doctor relationship to impacting management, to prognosticating future risk even. However, in the COVID-19 era, much of the traditional in-person office evaluation has shifted to the virtual arena. There are clear benefits to this shift, even beyond limiting viral transmission risk, right? With regards to improving access to care for certain patients, like who may have transportation issues, getting to see the patient in their usual environment, contextualizing who they are in, in terms of where they live. And, and even more, there are also opportunities to use and integrate remote digital health information from wearable technologies, digital skills, cardio MEMS device even. But clearly there are downsides with respect to the loss of that therapeutic touch in the physical exam. So I know this is a loaded question, but as an advocate for the art of the clinical exam, what is your bird's eye view perspective on the shifts from the in-person to the virtual, from the touch to the digital? So you've highlighted a lot of the benefits of the virtual technologies and platforms, being able to see the house. Relatives can participate in the visits. There's a lot of value there, but you do lose. There's something different about seeing the patient. Having said that, I do want to highlight one area because our group was interested in this. The neck veins are the key thing. Now we're not seeing the person. Can you do this over video? So two residents uh, in our group decided to look at this. Kevin Schessing, who's now a cardiology fellow, and Sam Kelly. And we took 30 patients who had heart failure, got, who were being referred for a right heart catheter. And we had a heart failure cardiologist come down and examine the person. And then we had the, either Kevin or Sam hold up a smartphone, call another heart, heart failure cardiologist who called two or three of us differently. And then we try to estimate the venous pressure over video, over the smartphone, just a traditional platform. And, it, and, then, and then we correlated that to the right atrial pressure. Um, that was measured the same day. And we didn't really know what we'd find. And we had a big debate in our group about this. There's no way you're going to be able to see anything over it. It turned out that when we looked at the correlation of the bedside to the right atrial pressure and the video to the right atrial pressure, the correlation coefficients were almost identical. And when you looked at the agreements rates, they were very high. And the ability to pick out a high right atrial pressure or high JVPR right atrial pressure also was very comparable between the two. Now, we had, it was 30 subjects. We had about 60 estimates. It was a pilot data just to show, is it feasible or not? And at least in this pilot data, it did seem like you could estimate the venous pressures remotely. Now, we had a physician there holding the camera. You know, we directed the resident, uh, Sam or Kevin, how to move it. And when you do this in real life with the patient, you don't have that person. And of course, they're using, a, like I, in our system, it's EPIC, and we're doing the EPIC video, the blue gene technology. But having done this with a lot of people clinically, many times I can read the neck veins in real life, not just in a research platform, and get a good feel for it. Every now and then you get someone where the video quality is not good enough, and you just can't tell. But many people, you can tell, and, and I can, there are plenty of people I've seen, I've seen the neck veins, and I said, look, you need to come to the emergency room. You're not doing well. And able to see that over video. 
So try it. For those of you listening, if you haven't done this before, try it. You can uh, check out his, their article is in JAMA Cardiology. It was a research letter last year and take a look at it and see what you think. But at least suggest that this is feasible, that you can merge the two, the clinical exam and video technology. Wow, Dr. Gosner, what an amazing overview. And I will say that there is no question now that you fit right in with us cardio nerds. And so not only do I have a better understanding of how to look at GVP and what it really means for our patients, but I can take a step back and look at the bigger picture around heart failure hospitalizations and episodes of congestion and how they affect our patients' overall prognosis. And I think this episode and all of the many, many pearls will certainly affect how I take care of patients in the future. I do have one last question question though. Dr. Drasner, what makes your heart flutter about heart failure uh, or should I say heart success? Well, I hope, I hope all of you and everyone listening will find a field that they enjoy as much as I enjoy the field that I, I went into. And I thought a lot about this, like, why do I like this so much? And, and I can go on a long time, but there's, there's a lot. I'll, I'll just give you some highlights. One is you take care of patients and then they're acutely ill. And then you see them back, let's say maybe you've stabilized them, got them on good GDMT, or maybe you, they have a VAT or transplant, what have you. And here you are 10 years later reminiscing about when they were acutely ill, and they know they might not have made it. And what a therapeutic bond that you formed. And so I find that very enjoyable. I do like the exam, and I've always liked the exam. And obviously, as we've talked about today, heart failure is a great field for that. New technologies, I mean, the VAD technology, yes, we have ways to go, but it's been exciting in my career to see, I, when I was a fellow, I watched a 30-year-old, we rotated balloon pumps and he died three or four weeks in because we didn't have durable VADs. And so just seeing that technology, that would never happen today now because now we could put a durable VAD in. And of course, it's been super exciting watching GDMT emerge. I mean, now new onset heart failure, acute heart failure, I love taking care of it because third to half of patients, you can dramatically, and they come to me, they, they, were, they look invariably you have heart failure. They go to Google, I'm going to die. They come to me. And then a year later, the EF's back to 55, half the patients, third to half the patients with GDMT. How gratifying is that, right? You took a patient who, who might not have made it. And then the other thing is for advanced heart failure, one of the really fun parts of the job is that it's very much of a team-based approach. We have a, a large team, allied healthcare workers, medical cardiologists. I work very closely with my surgical team. And I've always liked being on teams, and it's very much of a team-based approach, and I'm sure in every advanced heart failure center, so I've enjoyed that. And then the last thing I'll say is that for transplant, there's a limited number of organs to go around, and that sets up important ethical questions. I don't know why, but I've just always found that interesting to think about those things, and so that's, that's another component of it. So I go on, there's, there's more, but those are the highlights. I, I, frankly, I don't know why everyone doesn't go into advanced heart failure, because it's awesome. It has, it has something for everyone. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Drasner. It truly is inspirational. And it's inspirational just to watch people be so inspired by cardiology and their profession and their really their creed. We had been talking about doing a physical exam series forever. I mean, even from the show's inception, we knew that we had to do a physical exam and, and heart failure comes to mind. And for some reason, we just didn't do it. A hundred episodes later, and now we're finally doing this physical exam. And now I know why. We really, really needed somebody like you with passion, experience, and expertise to come here and really unlock just this beautiful, beautiful modality that we have that uh, should not be forgotten and should continue to be emphasized. And so, Dr. Drasner, it was a real treat to have you here. And uh, a special, 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 special shout out to Alex Pipolas for for being here and really, honestly, single-handedly preparing me for this episode so I can actually sound somewhat reasonably intelligent to even be in this conversation. So thank you both for coming out and joining us tonight and really sharing so many pearls and take-home messages for us and our listeners. This has been awesome. I really appreciate the invitation. It's been so fun hanging out with you guys and talking about this. And Alex, thank you for organizing all this. It's been incredible. And, and again, you guys, it's amazing the platform that you've developed and how much you're advancing education. It's really, really incredible to watch it. So congratulations. 